Two sessions ago, we talked about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Now, that same Saul would go on to become not just an apostle, the Apostle Paul, not just an author of half of the books in the New Testament, but perhaps the greatest missionary of all time. Roland Allen, who was a 20th century English missionary, he wrote a book on Paul's method of mission work. And here's how he summarizes St. Paul's impact as a missionary. In little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the Roman Empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before AD 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In AD 57, St. Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence for want of his guidance and support. Paul's extensive mission travels that Roland Allen talks about, these are recorded in the book of Acts, and they're usually divided into three different missionary journeys. And the first one we read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14, it begins in the city of Antioch in Syria. Uh, the church there, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it sends out Paul and Barnabas and it sends them on uh, the work of spreading the gospel, going and preaching the gospel in new places. At first, they go to Salamis and Paphos on the island of Cyprus. And then from there, they head north and they go to Perga and Pamphylia. And then they go to another city called Antioch. It can be a little confusing. This one in Pisidia, which is in southern Galatia. And then three more cities in southern Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, interestingly, these four cities that Paul and Barnabas visit, these are the same cities that Paul will later address his letter of Galatians to when he writes the letter of the Galatians. Well, after they go to these places, Paul and Barnabas return the way they came, and they return all the way to Antioch. And there's a lot that happens along the way that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. They encounter the magician, Elemas. They preach in synagogues and Roman crowds. They're met with both faith sometimes and with hostility. But instead of talking about everything that happens, I want to focus our attention on two elements, two events that take place in this first missionary journey. The first one is Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch that's recorded in Acts chapter 13, Paul's proclamation of the gospel there. And the second one is what happens to Paul and Barnabas, this strange thing that takes place in the Roman town of Lystra. Let's start with Paul's sermon. You might remember that when we talked about Peter's first evangelistic sermon in Jerusalem at the several sessions ago, I summarized that sermon by focusing on three points, three things that Peter said about the gospel. The first was that Peter talked about the events of what had taken place with Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The second was that Peter focused his proclamation on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the third is that Peter announced that on the basis of the resurrection, Jesus is king. 
Now, you see all of those same elements, interestingly, in Paul's sermon, when Paul stands up to preach the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. Paul is in a synagogue. The law and prophets have been read, and he stands up to respond. And he begins by summarizing the story of Israel, focusing especially on the covenant with David and the promise of a Davidic king. And then he talks about how this story of Israel culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's how he puts it in verses 32 and 33. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is the good news that Paul and Barnabas have come to proclaim, that God raised Jesus from the dead and that this raising of Jesus from the dead is a fulfillment of the promises to Israel, fulfillment of scriptures like Psalm 2. Specifically, it's a fulfillment of the promise of a king like David, a king who is a son, a king who will not be defeated by death, whom death cannot corrupt. In that sense, Paul's message here to these Jews is the same as Peter's. But I want to call attention to something else Paul says, something that's very characteristic of his later New Testament epistles. Notice what Paul says at the end of his speech in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, here Paul is summarizing why this news about Jesus is good. Why is it a great thing that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Well, he says, because now through him, what is being proclaimed to you is the forgiveness, release from your sins. Now, in and of itself, this is similar to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But Paul, Paul here goes on to add a further explanation by contrasting what is now being offered through Jesus with what was being offered through the law of Moses. Now, Paul says, unlike before when the Jews were under Moses' law, now everyone who believes is justified. That may not be what your translation says. The ESV, which I typically quote, as well as the NRSV, another major translation, they say that Paul says that everyone who believes is freed from sin. And that's accurate, but that's not quite what the Greek says. Paul uses a specific term here. He uses this technical Greek word from this verb dikaiao. It's one that we see again and again in his letters later on, his letters later on. Paul is saying that everyone who believes in Jesus is justified. As I said, this is a word that Paul uses quite a lot in his letters. And sometimes, in fact, He'll use this single word multiple times in a single sentence. Take, for instance, what he says in Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will ever be justified. This language comes up again in Paul's letter to the Romans. There too he talks about salvation by using this language of being justified by faith. I think for many people today this language about justified can be confusing. Because we use this word, justify, but we typically use it to refer to people giving a reason for their actions. Typically bad, you're justifying bad behavior. The word Paul uses, though, isn't about making excuses for something you've done. Paul's not saying that the good news of Jesus' resurrection is that now people have excuse for all of their misdeeds. No, when Paul talks about being justified here in his speech in Acts verse 39, it's connected to what he says in the previous verse about the forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul is saying, here's his good news to these Jews in Antioch. Those who trust in Christ are forgiven. They are freed. They are released. And because of that, they are now no longer guilty before God. Now they are righteous. That's what Paul means when he talks about being justified. He's referring to a person's status before God. Are you wicked in the eyes of God or are you righteous? The news that Paul proclaims to those Jews in Pisidian Antioch is, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are now right with God. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus has done. This is what justification by faith means. This is why it's been so important for Christians. It's why the reformer John Calvin referred to justification by faith as the hinge of the Reformation. It's why Martin Luther said that this teaching about justification by faith, about being forgiven and right with God purely through faith in Christ, Luther said this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's why for Anglicans, in our prayer book, the Articles of Religion at the back of our prayer book, they refer to justification by faith as a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. I think that the Heidelberg Catechism maybe summarizes this teaching best. What is it that Paul is saying in his speech? When it says that God grants, God gives to those who believe in Jesus, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ himself. Here's how the Catechism puts it. God grants these to me as if I had never nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Now, many of the Jews who were there that day, they did just that. They accepted the gift with a believing heart. But others, we read, rejected it. On the next Sabbath, Luke tells us that some of the Jews in Pisidian Antioch began to revile Paul and Barnabas, and they began to turn the crowd against them. And so, because of their rejection, Paul and Barnabas left the city, and they turned their attention from bringing the good news to Jews to turning their attention to Gentiles, non-Jews. 
It wasn't that they stopped speaking to Jews entirely. When they get to the next city of Iconium, we're told that once again they go to the synagogue. But now their attention is focused not on the Jewish people, but on Roman pagans. And when Paul and Barnabas get to Lystra, something really interesting happens. You see, Paul comes across a crippled man and senses faith in him, and he heals him. And Luke says in verse 11 of chapter 14, that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The people think that Paul and Barnabas aren't just mere men, that they are Greek gods. They think that they're Zeus and Hermes, in fact, who have shown up in human form. Now, we read this story, and this seems like a bizarre reaction, but it's not really out of character for what we know about the Roman world. Since at least the time of the Greek poet Homer, many Greeks and later Romans, they thought that the gods really did show up from time to time in human form. There's even a story, in fact, there's a story about Zeus and Hermes showing up in the region of Phrygia, which is just north of Lystra. The Roman poet Ovid tells this story in his book, Metamorphoses. And as Ovid tells it, Jupiter and Mercury, that's the Roman names for Zeus and Hermes. Jupiter and Mercury, they visit Phrygia and they disguise themselves as humans. And no one gives them any hospitality. Thousands of people reject them. And finally, this elderly couple named Balcus and Philemon, they, they welcome Jupiter and Mercury disguised as these humans, and they give them a meal. And in the middle of the meal, they notice that the wine is replenishing itself, and they recognize who they really are. Well, because of the hospitality that they've shown, Balcus and Philemon are spared from the judgment that Jupiter and Mercury exact against the rest of the people in Phrygia, and they're rewarded by the gods. They're rewarded by being given whatever they ask for. Now, if you keep this story in mind, this was written in the first century. It helps make sense of what's going on here with Paul and Barnabas. It explains why the people in Lystra think that these two men are gods and why they respond the way they do by attempting to offer sacrifice. You see, Paul, Paul has done something with healing this crippled man. He's done something that only a god could really do. And if the Lystrans, if they don't respond by offering hospitality and honor and sacrifice, then they're probably thinking we may be judged like all of those Phrygians who didn't receive Jupiter and Mercury properly. Now, at the same time, if they do welcome and honor Paul and Barnabas, if they respond like Balchus and Philemon did, then maybe they'll be blessed and rewarded in the same way. So you see what's going on here isn't just a matter of superstition or pagan piety. What's taking place in this event is something very transactional. The gods are here in the form of Paul and Barnabas, and we better do something for them. Why? Well, so they'll do something for us. It's a very quid pro quo way of understanding the relationship with the gods. 
And when Paul and Barnabas finally realize what's happening, at first, because they don't speak Lyconian, they don't understand. But when they realize, they immediately tear their clothes in distress and they address the crowd. And here's what they say. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these foolish things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, notice the significance of this response. Notice what, what are Paul and Barnabas saying here? They're not just rejecting the worship of the Lystrans, and they're not just preaching good news. The good news is also a condemnation of these people's religion. Paul and Barnabas call their talk about Zeus and Hermes, their way that they respond, they call it foolish things. It's the same language that the Old Testament regularly uses when it talks about pagan idolatry. In effect, what Paul and Barnabas are saying is, your ideas about the gods and this transactional quid pro quo way that you have of relating to them, all of this is empty, it's foolish, it's false. That's not what God is like. The real God, the one that they call the living God, is the one who creates and blesses, not as a reward for what people do for him, but simply for his own good pleasure. That's what Paul and Barnabas are saying when they talk about the living God and point out that this is the creator God. This is a God that creates simply because he desires to and blesses those whom he chooses. And that's why Paul and Barnabas go on to say, they say in verse 17, he did good. This God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Which is really another way of saying, you can't control the living God. He blessed you simply because he chose to. He sent rains. He gave you fruitful seasons. He has already given you good things and made glad your hearts. So stop trying to control and manipulate the gods. Stop trying to control divine power and just believe. So it's no wonder that the crowds turn so quickly from wanting to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas to trying to kill Paul. And the next thing they do, then the very next thing that we read about is that the crowd who was just moments ago trying to sacrifice to Paul, that they join with some of the Jews who were against Paul and they stone him. It's because the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are bringing, this good news is also calling into question everything that their entire religious system, everything that their Roman religious system and everything that their culture and their economy is built on. We'll continue to see this theme through Acts as Paul does his missionary work amongst Romans, that it is met sometimes with faith and gladness and sometimes with hostility because his word is directly challenging the Roman way of the world. And later on, in Acts, in fact, Paul and his companions will be accused of turning the world upside down with their teaching. 
And I think already here in Lystra, we can see that that's true. That really is starting to happen. Paul and Barnabas, they're on mission in a pagan world. They bear good news, but the news that they bear is also a rejection of the normal way of the world. God has raised Jesus from the dead and his followers who are bringing this news around, they are turning the world upside down with what they're saying. And the question for us as readers and the question for us as the church is how will we respond? <laughs>